They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife, Caitlin, and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This month, we read Beach Read by Emily Henry, the story of two writers suffering with writer's block who are bad at communicating and require three months to get past their own egos and just be in love already. This book does come with a trigger warning for suicide and child abuse. Now, take out your red pens because we have a couple of notes. Beach Read is a 2020 contemporary romance novel by Emily Henry. This is her first romance aimed at an adult audience, having written four previous young adult romance novels. Beach Read was a New York Times bestseller and came in second in the romance category of the Goodreads Choice Awards. Her following two novels also feature romance among members of the publishing industry and have also achieved huge success. January Andrews has had a bad year. Her father passed away unexpectedly, and in the wake of his death, she's inherited his secret lake house and discovered the mistress he hid there. With January reeling from these discoveries, her boyfriend Jacques decided he just can't deal with her anymore and breaks up with her, kicking her out of their shared apartment. She has three months to write a novel, but she's got horrible writer's block. She writes romance novels, and between the ex-boyfriend and the philandering dead dad, she's not sure she even believes in love anymore. But she has a job to do, and a lake house to do it in, so off she goes to North Bear Shore, Michigan. January is at the lake house less than a day before she is fighting with her next door neighbor. She offends him first, having a crass conversation with her best friend Shoddy loudly on the back porch but he cements the rivalry by blasting music late at night. The pair manage to enrage and offend each other without ever seeing each other's faces. The next day, January visits the local bookstore and coffee shop, hoping to do a bit of networking. She meets the local shopkeeper, Pete, who invites her to the local book club and plans to order a few of January's books for the store. January, irritated, notices that her college rival, Augustus Everett, or Gus, happens to have a whole table display dedicated to his books, and on cue, the man himself walks into the shop. Pete introduces them, and January pretends not to remember him, despite remembering him very well. And to her chagrin, she realizes he is the rude next-door neighbor. January gets out of there as fast as possible, promising to come to the book club next week. But because nothing can ever go right for January, she arrives at the book club to a string of misfortunes. First, her dad's mistress, Sonia, is a member of the book club. Second, she's been misled into thinking this book club would be discussing her book, or that she would be a featured guest of some kind. Turns out, they only read spy novels here. They just wanted her to come hang out, be an extra body. Third, and worst of all, Gus was also invited. She deals with these roadblocks by drinking a bottle of purse wine and moping, leading her to become too drunk to drive home. And since North Bear Shore is a very small town with exactly one Uber driver, Gus offers to drive January home. He even buys her donuts on the way. 
As they eat their donuts, Gus admits that he absolutely remembers January from college. And we learn that in addition to being riding rivals, they also kissed at a frat party once. Scandal. Gus is generally courteous. January takes offense to absolutely everything he says. And they discover that both of them are struggling with writer's block. The pair decide that the key to their writing struggles is a healthy competition. January will attempt to write a literary, character-driven, dark, brooding novel in Gus's style, while Gus will attempt to write a quirky, romantic comedy in January's style. They will also spend their weekend giving each other lessons in their writing and research methods. And in the end, whoever sells their book first is the winner, and the loser has to market for them. January learns that the subject of Gus's next novel is meant to be a cult that was once active near North Bear Shore called New Eden, which burned down in a suicide pact years ago. His weekend lessons will primarily consist of interviews with survivors of the cult and family members of the victims. January's lessons, on the other hand, are a series of rom-com-style dates, including a carnival, a drive-in movie, and a family cookout. The next third of the book is very repetitive, so we'll give you the TLDR. The pair will do a funny date thing for January, they'll get closer, January insults Gus a little, he comments on how she's always mean to him, she reflects on how mean she thought he was in college, then the next day they go to interview a cult survivor, Gus reveals a little bit about his abusive childhood, then instantly regrets it, and January spends the next week wondering where she stands with him. Rinse and repeat for about a month or so. Every date they get a little closer physically. Unfortunately, this game of will they, won't they can only last so long before Pete, who it turns out is Gus's aunt, decides to get involved. She reveals to January that Gus is actually in the middle of a divorce, and January takes this personally. When Gus's soon-to-be ex-wife shows up in an author Q&A event, January decides that's the end and hurries home to find Mistress Sonia lurking on her dark porch demanding a word. Sonia tells her all about how the love affair with her father happened, and then tells January to look in the safe in the bedroom. January looks and finds a bunch of letters from her father, written to her every year on her birthday. She reads them and cries and reflects on love and calls her best friend to come see her. After a day of best friend time and breakup moping, Gus shows back up at January's house in a thunderstorm, plays a romantic song on his obnoxiously loudspeakers, and tells her all about how he wants to be with her and he loves her, and they kiss in the rain. Flash forward nine months and they both finished and sold their books, and on the one-year anniversary of their meeting, which is also the anniversary of Gus's wife leaving him, but we don't need to talk about that, I guess, their friends and family throw them a big party and they get engaged. The end. Now that we've covered the bones of the story, let's go over our notes. But first, a quick ad break. Welcome back! Now that we've covered the plot, let's get to our notes, starting with what works. So I want to preface this with we did not hate this book. <laughs> uh, one of us didn't hate this book. I think that's an important thing to note going forward. <laughs> we did not hate this book. But we're gonna criticize it pretty harshly because we didn't love it either. It's... <sighs> I believe the phrase that we repeated the most during this book was, this is the most average book. 
the most average rom-com you've ever read. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's very paint-by-numbers. Like, just picture every, like, Reese Witherspoon rom-com from the early 2000s that you ever watched. And, and this is it. It's that. And I never want to be the kind of reader who allows hype to get in the way of my reading experience. But I could not stop wondering why this book is so popular when it's so average. Yeah, this this book was all over booktube and book talk and everywhere. Just like people saying that this was the, the book of the summer. They loved this book so much. It was so much fun. It was so entertaining. It was so funny and silly and quirky and they just loved it so much. And I just... I don't get it. And it's not that we don't like rom-coms. We've read other rom-coms in this in the course of this podcast. Yeah, we loved Meet Cute Club. Meet yeah. Cute Club was almost perfect. <laughs> and Meet Cute Club was also very much just like a quirky little rom-com. But just something about this book was just so bland. I really wanted more from it, especially since I was so excited about reading a story about writers. Because we're writers. And I realized when I was checking out this book that I really loved the idea of reading books about books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it appeals right to my interest as a reader. Yeah. But we just spent like 60 seconds talking about why we didn't like this book, and we're supposed to be talking about what worked for it. I'm prefacing. <laughs> we're prefacing. So let's let's talk about what this book does have going for it. Some of the things that it has going for it that are that are why people might enjoy this book. Yes. Um, first of all, it's got a cute little cottage core aesthetic to it. Mm -hmm. The setting is cute. I'll admit when I saw that the book was called Beach Read, I assumed we'd be somewhere tropical. I assumed we'd be somewhere like Florida, or Hawaii, or California, or California, yeah, or maybe like the Caribbean. And maybe it's just because we didn't really grow up in the Midwest, but I don't consider a lakeside to be a beach. <laughs> exactly. I don't consider lakes or rivers or whatever. I don't consider that a beach. When I think beach, you know, and maybe it's because we live right by one of the biggest spring break beaches in Florida. Mm -hmm. So to us, like a beach is the ocean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a lake beach. She's in a lake house. She's on a lake beach. I think she's in Michigan. Mm -hmm. She's in Michigan, yeah. And I just didn't get that vibe from the cover and title. Yeah, like I, there's a lot of rain happening. <laughs> there's a lot of like talk about, you know, the winter. Even though it's summer, there's a lot of talk about winter and what the place looks like in winter when it's all snowy and stuff. And it just didn't give me beach vibes. I wanted summer vibes and I wasn't getting them. Yeah. But if you associate lakes with summer and cottages by lakes to be your summer aesthetic, I totally get that. Yeah, if you love the cottage core vibe of like a little cottage in the mountains by the lake and like whatever goes with that, then by all means, like, this is your jam. Go for it. Fun. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a thing. Yeah, the setting was cute. Mm -hmm. Unexpected, but cute. Yeah. Um, there is one character, Pete. Mm -hmm. The character of Pete, who is Gus's aunt, and she runs the local coffee shop slash bookstore and also the book club. She's fun. Mm -hmm. She's cute, and her wife Maggie is also fun. I didn't really mention her in the summary because she doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. She's just kind of around. But she's a fun... Pete's a fun character. She's sneaky and gossipy mm -hmm. and... Like, she's kind of pulling the strings. Like, you definitely get the vibe after a while that, like, she wants Gus and January to be together. Mm -hmm. And she's really just trying to, like, 
I'm just gonna give them a little nudge, just a little nudgy nudge nudge together. And I do feel obligated to give you a gold star for positive queer representation. <laughs> yeah, we have these two adorable lesbians. Like Pete runs her little shop and then Maggie's a geology professor at the local university. And they've been together like since Gus was a child, so forever and ever. And they just have their three dogs and they helped raise Gus and they got this cute little house. And so like, yeah, gold star for that. <laughs> Yay gays. We also awarded another little gold star sticker for safe sex representation. Yes, during during one of the two sex scenes that they have, uh, there's a moment where like it looks like they're gonna just go for it, and then she's like, do you have a condom? And he's like, I do not, but I have some at my house. Let's go next door to my house and get a condom. And they did that. And they do that. I don't remember them discussing a condom the second time they have sex, because they were like camping or whatever. But that was like more of a glossed over sex scene anyways. They didn't really get into the dirty details of that one. Yeah, I assume he brought them. Yeah. He just didn't have any on him at the time because he just came over to tell her about potato salad. Yeah. But like, you know, I appreciate in a romance novel when we actually pause the sex to discuss uh, safety and pregnancy prohibition because that's not really a conversation you usually get to have and it's important. <laughs> exactly. It matters. It matters because a lot of erotica especially, like this isn't really erotica, this is a rom-com with sex in it. <laughs> but like Meet Cute Club did that too where <laughs> they, they took the time to be like, also here's a condom. Like just to remind you like, hey, remember, don't get caught up in the moment. These things exist. Use them. Because like it can be easy to forget that those things exist and that you should use them. Mm-hmm. Use them. Like, not to get current events here, but use a condom. If you're in the U.S., you know why that's more important now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gosh. Um, so moving on, I thought the writing style was nice. <laughs> it's nothing amazing, but I thought it was nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's clean, it's crisp, it, it does its job. Yeah, it pulls you along. It's I don't, professional. I didn't feel like it was dragging. I mean, it felt like the pace was dragging, but not the writing itself. Yeah, the writing itself, like, it gets it gets you there. Mm-hmm. It does its job. There was some humor. January hits, like, one out of every ten jokes she tries. Some of the jokes she makes are, like, very bland, and they don't hit. But then every now and then she gets a zinger in there. Yeah. And the thing is, like, there's an attempt at a joke pretty much every page. Mm-hmm. January is very sardonic, very sarcastic, and she tries really hard to make jokes. <laughs> Not all of her jokes were for me, but you know, she hits one in ten, so I imagine that for someone, she's hitting more. <laughs> like, I imagine there's someone there that's just laughing their butt off at every single joke. <laughs> I'm sure there's someone that this is just their brand of humor and they're just like, this is hilarious. Oh. <laughs> yes. There's definitely a solid attempt at humor and that's really, I think the driving force of the rom-com and the rom-com energy. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's some funny situations and I think you can, this is kind of a criticism, but the town is kind of crummy. Like, <laughs> 
Yeah, the town is definitely crummy and weird. Like, there's two places to get coffee in this town, and they both suck. <laughs> the guy at the donut shop doesn't wear clothes, and he just mashes all the donuts together in a bag that's too small for them. Yeah, he just he just dances around in his underwear and has his music turned up, and it's just like, here's some donuts. They're all packed into a box. There's 12 of them in a box that's meant for six. Have your donut monster, like... And maybe it's, like, an attempt to do something new with the small town vibes. Yeah. Like... She does end up moving there, but it's not kind of like it's the town itself that's seducing her because it's kind of crummy. Yeah, and like the uh, the carnival they go to, it's not like a big, ooh, a whole state fair just happens to be happening right here. Like it's a carnival that they have to drive two hours to get to and it's just this tiny little dinky traveling fair that's in a parking lot that, you know, we've all seen it. We've driven past that one that's like in a big lots parking lot and it's got like three rides and a hot dog stand and you're like, I wonder what's happening over there. <laughs> and you like, don't stop because it's definitely not worth your time. So I guess upon further inspection, that was all kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Like an ironic, we're doing something a little different than the typical rom-com thing because mm -hmm. the child isn't really that charming. Yeah, like the most romantic setting that they go to in this entire place is a, uh, is an olive garden. <laughs> they have a really nice night in an olive garden. <laughs> You know, that does hit home. That does hit home. Our first date was at an Olive Garden. Our first, like, real date. Yeah. I do love Olive Garden. <laughs> you can't beat endless breadsticks. <laughs> Hashtag not sponsored. Not spawn. Olive Garden sponsors. Okay, moving on. If Olive Garden wants to sponsor us, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Oh, we're... It's early, guys. So, one thing that they did have in here that came very early in the book, but it is good. It is a good thing. There is a very decent discussion that happens about book genres and shelving and genre discrimination and how that can kind of hurt book sales. Because January mentions that she gets pegged as a romance writer a lot, but technically her books are not shelved as romance. They are shelved as women's literature. And she gets really, really pissy about the fact that her books are called women's lit. Because if her main characters were men, it wouldn't be called men's literature. It would just be called literature. And how her books are not actually that different than what Gus writes, it's just that her main characters are women. And we've discussed in this podcast before all about that. Yeah, you know, we've discussed some frustrations with women's writings being pigeonholed into the chiclet genre, which kind of like puts off a good portion of their potential audience. Yeah. But I think maybe not necessarily because of the points this book was making, but it did have me reflect on thinking about genre differently and how in the past, before you got most things online, where your books were shelved in bookstores and libraries really mattered because everything has to be organized by one genre. Even though, honestly, most books fall into multiple genres, like at least three. Yeah. Almost every book does. But you have to organize it a certain way for physical copies, and that can hurt sales for certain authors. Yeah, because like she talks about how, you know, her books are always shelved on the women's lit shelves. Which most men are never going to walk over and pick up a book off the women's lit shelf. So even if her book is like actually a really cool spy novel or something, if it's shelved on women's lit, men who like spy novels are never going to go over and pick up her book because it's not shelved over by the spy novels, it's shelved on women's lit. 
because her main character is a woman on a journey. Mm -hmm. Even if she's also like the female James Bond being awesome. Which that's not what she writes, but still, like that's the point. And this kind of made me reflect on how with everything becoming digital, I think it's a lot easier to get that multiple genre representation out there and mm -hmm. to get people more interested in cross-genre and trying new books that they wouldn't have picked up before because it can be on multiple digital shelves. Exactly, because you think about some of the books that we've reviewed in the past, like Where the Crawdads Sing. Mm -hmm. It's women's lit. It's also a romance. It's also a murder mystery and a legal procedural. And a historical. Historical. And it's got some sciencey stuff in it too. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of things, but if you just put it on the women's lit shelf, it might put people off. Mm -hmm. But somebody who really likes murder mysteries and legal procedurals can still find it if they go online and they look up murder mystery legal procedural and it pops up as a New York Times bestseller for that. Yeah. And again, we're not dissing on women's lit as an entire genre because it can be nice for women to use this to find other women who write. Yeah. And to find female-led stories. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was just an interesting point that I had to reflect on, and it kind of changed the way I thought about genre. I've decided to not think about it so much as boxes that a book has to fit into, and more like stickers. And you can put as many stickers as you want on the book. Yeah. And you know, Gus kind of comes back at her with that also, about how she's pigeonholing him too, because she talks about how his books are all, you know, coldly horny men living in New York City and brooding about women and whatever. And he's like, have you even read my books? And she admits like, no, I haven't. I just assume based on like who you are as a person that all of your books are self-insert characters doing everyday things. They're sad boy books. They're sad boy books. Yeah. She's like, all of your books are basically Salinger. All of your books are Catcher in the Rye. You may recognize J.D. Salinger from the hit show, Hollywood Stars and Celebrities. What do they you know? know? Do, do they, they know, know things? things? Let's, Let's find, find out. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> Again, not sponsored. <laughs> and I kind of wish the book had delved into this theme more because I took a lot out of it, but it's because I was looking for something to take out of what we were getting. I was bored. <laughs> Last point of goodness, the letters. Mm -hmm. January spends a lot of this book thinking about how she never knew her father. Yeah. And about how everything she believed about him was a lie. Yeah, because she thought that she grew up in this perfect family, where the biggest problem was her mother's reoccurring cancer, which we didn't mention in the intro, but yes, her father cheated on a woman with cancer. <laughs> yeah and she thought it was their love and their determination to get through it together because they always put on such a great face for her. Mm -hmm. And so it was really shattering when the love story that she based all of her novels on was tainted by her father's cheating. Mm -hmm. And she felt like she got some of that relationship with him back when she discovered the letters that he'd been writing to her on her birthday. Yeah. And it really didn't help that like, the way she learned about the affair was really heart-wrenching because she's like at her dad's funeral and this woman that she's never met shows up with this letter and is like, I have this letter in this lake house key from your father. I'm an old friend of his. And she's looking at her and she's like, that is not the sad face of an old friend. That is the sad face of my mother. That is the sad face of someone who loved him biblically. Like, 
And then her mother comes over and she's like, Sonia, get the fuck out. You weren't supposed to be here. You said you wouldn't come. Uh, and so like, you know, her mother's, her mother is like being very obvious. Mm -hmm. And then she's like trying to talk to her mother about it. She's like, who was that woman? What is that? And her mom's like, I can't talk about this. Don't make me talk about this. Like, and so she's just, no one's talking to her and she feels like she knows nothing. And Sonia keeps trying to talk to her. She keeps emailing her and being like, talk to me. And she's like, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to my mom. I want to talk to my dad. I can't talk to my dad. He's dead. My mom won't talk to me. Like she's struggling. And that is kind of her internal struggle throughout this whole thing. I, I feel like I'd like it more if the book was just about that. But instead we've got Gus. <laughs> We say that, like, Gus is the problem with this novel, but I liked him a lot more than January. I liked him a lot more than January, too. He was actually a decent guy, and January is just kind of annoying. Like, I am... I mentioned this while we were reading the book. I am never the kind of person to call a woman the B-word in a negative term. I will use it in a positive way all the time. I'll be like, oh, bitch! Like, I will. But January is one of the first women in a very long time <laughs> to make me be like, why are you being such a shrill, entitled biash? Like, I don't use that word lightly, but that is the word I would use for January. She irks the heck out of me. And these, I, yeah. I do get that, and I think the only reason I don't feel as strongly about that is because I read another rom-com earlier this year called Pari and the Ghost Witch Whisperer, and she's like twice as bad as January, and all I was thinking while I read that book is why is she such a bitch? <laughs> and January's like half at that level, so I'm like, okay, you're just a little bitchy. <laughs> yeah. Stepping back for a second. Yeah, the letters were nice. <laughs> yeah, back on subject. <laughs> we'll touch back on this in half a second. <laughs> but yeah, the letters were nice, and they were actually kind of a surprise because I expected... I didn't expect 29 letters. Yeah. She had this one letter that Sonia gave her at the funeral that she'd been avoiding reading because she thought it was gonna be... Excuses, really. Yeah. She talks about how she didn't want to open it because it's all she had left of her father, but I felt deep down she didn't want to hear the excuses to his cheating. And then when she reads the letters, she finds out kind of the details of their affair, and it doesn't make it better, but it also comes with other letters that her father lovingly wrote to her when he wasn't cheating on her cancerous mother. <laughs> and that was kind of nice. Yeah, it's got these, these letters that, you know, every year on her birthday, he wrote her a letter. And, you know, she opens up the safe and she reads the letters, and she'd been trying to open the safe before, and she was using, like, her parents' anniversary and his birthday and whatever, and she never bothered to try her own birthday. I know, like, that was the first thing I thought was, girl, you're an only child, enter your birthday into the safe. Yeah, and of course that ends up being the code for the safe. She gets all the letters out, she reads them all, and, you know, they describe what happened, basically how... The affair started during a period when she was around 12 years old, but she does remember when her parents were briefly separated. <laughs> so like, you know, they weren't divorced, but they were separated, and that's when the affair started. Then he went back to her mother, then she got cancer again, and he went back to Sonia. Mm -hmm. And that's when he was like full on cheating, cheating, because they were definitely still married, and he was having an affair. 
because he was like, my wife's gonna die, so backup wife? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like the first time he hooks up with Sonya when they're having this break, which like, I feel like it was still definitely cheating because they were on a break to save we their marriage. We were on a break! <laughs> like, they were spending some time apart to help their marriage, okay? This was not a we're breaking up thing. And sleeping with another woman is not gonna help your marriage, so I think this counts as cheating. Yeah. But then he goes back to her mother when she gets cancer for the first time. When she gets cancer for the second time, he runs back to Sonia. Yeah, because he's like, well, cancer's gonna gonna get her, so I guess it's time to start moving on before she's dead. Um, and he, he mentions that he's using the affair as a way of punishing himself. That's such bullshit. Which, yeah, that's some bullshit. That doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, you're gonna juggle two women and have your cake and eat it too and that's a punishment for you? Okay, Mr. Man. There's lawn work happening outside our window. Um, I don't know if you can hear it. We might pause. Yeah, let's pause. <laughs> Okay, and we're back. So the letters do offer some clarity, even if they don't make necessarily endear the father to anybody. So we've gone over the good things about this book. A lot of them come with a grain of salt. Now let's take out our red pens and talk about what we really didn't like. <laughs> I need to talk about this line that showed up on the first or second page of this book. We were listening to the audiobook, and it definitely showed up within the first couple minutes. There is a line here that's when January first shows up at the lake house. Where, you know, all we know so far is she's at a lake house and she doesn't want to be there. And she says this, maybe dad wasn't really dead. Maybe he'd jump out from behind a shrub and say, you didn't really think that I had a second life and a second house with a woman other than your mother. This is the most fucking sloppy exposition I have ever seen. I mean, this is, it's bad. <laughs> It's bad, guys. That is not how you reveal the main internal conflict of your story. It's cheesy. It's obvious. It is... It's bad, okay? It's bad. I didn't hate it as much as you did, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's bad. I mean, I kind of see what you're saying. Like, there, there are so many simple, subtle, nuanced ways that one can reveal that she is struggling due to the fact that she is at her father's love shack, effectively. Because, you know, that's kind of the whole point, is that this lake house was the place where he and Sonia would go together. Or, and this is the place where he went to live when, they were, when his, he was separated from her mother and all those other things. And that's why she doesn't want to be at this freaking lake house. That is not the way. Because first of all, it's, it's goofy, okay? It's goofy. You've got this woman. They've already described her in a goofy manner. She's pulled up in this dinky-ass car with a bill box of gin bottles, like the mini kind. The value-sized box of mini gin bottles. And she's walking up these steps with this big box of mini gin bottles. And she's like, maybe my dad's just gonna jump out of the shrubs. Like, it's a silly image to put in your head. And it's also like, oh, okay. Just throw that right out there in the very beginning. Now we, like, on the plus side, now we know exactly where, where we are and what we're getting into. Yeah. But, like, there are so many better ways. 
that could have been expressed. But would they be as memorable as this? <laughs> I just... Red pen. X. 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 <laughs> Fix it. <laughs> I see your point. I think the thing that bothered me the most about this story was the romance itself, because honestly, January and Gus are both rude people without chemistry. <laughs> yes. Especially January. I mean, she's just mean. Mm-hmm. Like, there are even times when her humor's not landing to where it just comes off as so mean-spirited, and it's like, why are you acting like this? Yeah, he even mentions at one point, during their first sex scene, she is mocking him during sex. Because they are, they are in a position where they're, like, up against the bookshelves. And the reason is because he keeps a jar of condoms by the door. You know, just in case, like, you're running out the door, you gotta grab a condom, like, you know, for a date or whatever. I guess that's something men do. <laughs> I don't know, lesbian problems. Not my <laughs> issue. But she starts roasting him. She's like, oh my god, do you always fuck against your bookshelves? Is that why your condoms are here? Are your books behind me? Is this an ego thing? <laughs> Ing, do you like to fuck up against your books? Like, I, is are you that big-headed that you just like to have sex on your own books, you dirty man? And I and know he's she... like, could you stop roasting me long enough for me to just make love to you, please? <laughs> and I know it's supposed to be funny, and like, sometimes she is funny. You said one in ten times, I felt like maybe one in five, give or take. But why is she being so mean right now? Exactly. This, this is just mean. She's so mean to him. Like, there were times when I kind of was very concerned for Gus being with her because she's so consistently mean to him. Yeah. She just com consistently, like, disses him. Also, she is constantly taking offense to things that he did not say. Mm-hmm. And that he did not intend. Like, he'll make a comment about his style of writing, and she'll be like, which is so much harder than my style of writing, right? Because my style of writing is just so easy. Because I just write silly little women's books, right? And it's like, could you stop projecting your damage for five seconds? <laughs> or like, anytime he talks about his abusive childhood, because he had a really bad childhood. He grew up with an abusive father, his mother died young, so he was alone in the house with a father who like, was awful to him. Bad times all around for poor Gussie Gus. And she's like, Oh, so my childhood wasn't hard? I had a blessed childhood, is that what you're trying to say? I never went through anything difficult. It's like, he didn't say that. He never said that. Also, you're the one pushing him to talk about his abusive childhood because every time he starts to talk about it, he says, like, I don't really want to talk about this because I don't want you to pity me. I don't want you to see me as, like, that broken child that was abused and hurt and whatever. I'm trying to move past that. And she pushes him to talk about it. And then when he talks about it, and he talks about his damage, and he talks about his issues, she's like, oh, and I guess I never had any issues ever. I'm just a blessed little fairy princess, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I never said any of that. Like, could she get out of her own head for five minutes and just listen to this man who is trying to make a genuine connection with her? <laughs> and like, even when she's not blatantly... <laughs> trying to force him to talk about his abusive childhood, she keeps making assumptions based on what he said five years ago because she doesn't believe 
that someone can grow after they go through college. Yes, because five years ago in college, he made two comments that made her angry. Mm-hmm. One, he made a comment about how all her stories have happy endings. About how, how everyone lives happily ever after. And then two, he called her a fairy princess at one point. Neither of those were meant to be insults. No, it's it's so blatantly obvious from the beginning of the story that she was the one that got away from him. He had a huge crush on her in college. And she refuses to believe that for the longest time because to her, he was her college rival and they hated each other. And even when all the signs are in front of her that her perception was skewed, she keeps coming back to the things he said. Yeah, even after they have sex, and he tells her, I've wanted to do that for so long, like since college, she still can't get it through her head that he has liked her for all that time. She still thinks that fairy princess was an insult and that everyone lives ev happily ever after again was an insult when fairy princess was a compliment, which I would take fairy princess as a compliment. I want to be a fairy princess. Yeah. He was, he was calling her beautiful and lively and a bright light in the world. And I kind of get that there are times when you get backhanded remarks. <laughs> and I'm not saying that she's necessarily wrong for how she felt in the moment. Mm -hmm. But she won't let it go despite all of the evidence. And it's been five years. Yeah, even when he says to her face, that is not what I meant by that remark. What I meant was this. She still refuses to accept that explanation and goes, no, no, it was a bad thing. No, it was a bad thing. He meant it as a bad thing. He thinks I'm too sweet and too nice and he hates me. It's like, no, January, you hate yourself. She's so insecure all the time and it's frustrating to read. Yeah, and I seriously just like, the whole time for poor Gus, I was just screaming like, run. This is, this girl is actually damaged. She needs therapy. Maybe in the future when she's worked through her issues, maybe you guys can work it out. But like, she's having problems right now. She is not ready for a relationship. Mm-hmm. And you've been through too much. Yeah. Like, she's personally offended when she finds out that Gus is still married, but it's not like when her parents were separated for a time. No, her, Gus's ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife is refusing to sign divorce papers. They've been separated for at least a year, maybe two. Mm -hmm. And of course, his ex-wife or soon-to-be comes crawling back to him and then tries to make him feel like he should be grateful that she came crawling back to him. Yeah, when she left him for his best friend, or not best friend, his college roommate. I think he was his best friend at the time. Yeah. And instead of supporting him, January, takes personal offense to this, assumes it's all over, ditches and ghosts him. Yeah. And it's like, okay, great job showing support to your lover. Yeah, even when she, when she first finds out he was married, she doesn't even know that he's in the process of a divorce. At first she knows that he was married. She thinks he's already divorced. Mm -hmm. So they, they have to have a conversation about that, but before they even have a conversation about that, she just learns he was married, his wife left him. So she doesn't know any of the other details about that yet. He was married, his wife left him. And for several chapters, 
all she focuses on. For like a week, not talking to him, just focusing entirely in her head, all she focuses on is he was married. Not that he didn't tell her, not the possibility that he might still be married, not even that, just he was married. Because in her mind, it is a betrayal of everything that she thought he was that he ever was married. Because in her mind, he is the guy who has one night stands and never dates anyone for more than a month. And hates love. And hates love. And so the idea that he ever loved someone enough to marry them means that everything she knows about him is a lie. It's just her assumptions. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you haven't seen this man in five, six years? Like, yeah, in the time between the last time you saw him and now, he was married. You've been hanging out with him for like a month. He doesn't owe you that information. Yeah. But she takes it as a personal betrayal. Again, not that he didn't tell her, but just that he was married. You know, I could understand it if she was upset that they made out and he was still legally married. Yeah. If that was her problem, I would completely understand it. But it wasn't. She's just offended that he's capable of love and she didn't think he was. Yeah, or even if she was offended that he didn't talk to her about the fact that he was married. Because he does kind of mislead her a little because she makes a comment about how back in college, you know, he was always like, Mr. You know, I date a girl for two weeks and then I break up with her kind of thing. And he makes a joke about how that number's gotten shorter since college. And what he really means is that's gotten shorter since my divorce you know, since my wife left me. He makes a joke about how now it's really just more of a one and done kind of thing for him. So like, I get it, he did kind of mislead her, but she never focuses on that. She never focuses on he misled me. Mm -hmm. She focuses on he was married. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is all she focuses on is he was married. Not he didn't tell me, not he didn't communicate, not he misled me, not he's still married, not any of that, just he was married, and therefore everything I believed about him is a lie. Because at some point in his life, he was married. And therefore, the man he is now, as I know him, doesn't really exist. Because there was once a version of him that was a husband. <sighs> it's such an entitled and self-centered worldview. Yeah. And I can't stand that in romantic leads. Yeah, and also like, that's part of the reason why she doesn't believe that he has loved her for all this time, because in between college and now, he was married. I don't think she even draws attention to that. If we're moving on, there's one thing that's kind of a nitpick, but we do spend a significant amount of this story focusing on January packing up this house because she intends to sell it at the end of the summer. <laughs> and the thing is, I have no idea why we wasted time on this because it's a vacation home. She can sell it as is with furniture. Yeah, there was no reason for any amount of words to be spent on this. Yeah. Like, she, she specifically goes through this whole house and the only thing in this entire house that is like a personal item is the safe. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how, you know, there's nothing in this house that is like personal. Sonia's already taken everything she wants from the house. There is nothing in this house that has any value to her. She doesn't want any of it. Like, the only reason she's here is to clear it out 
and sell it. And the safe isn't like a wall safe that's like stuck in the wall. It's, it's just a safe that's under the bed. Just take the safe and leave. You don't need to sell every little knickknack and piece of furniture out of this house. Yeah, she goes out of her way to tell us there's not really a lot of personal items here. It would probably make more sense to keep the furniture to show to buyers. There was zero reason to waste time on packing up this house. Yeah, this is a lake house in a primarily tourist town. Sell the house as is. I promise you, some timeshare company will buy the house as is and rent it out to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, the only reason I think she did this was because she was desperate for cash to buy food to get through the rest of the summer, so she felt inclined to sell the furniture to get that money. But it wasn't necessary, it didn't contribute to anything. Yeah. And the book already feels like it's dragging on as is, so like, Jesus, cut all that out. Yeah, and I mean, the only other thing it really served to do was to give her an excuse to talk to Sonia, because sometimes she emails Sonia and is like, hey, do you want XYZ from the house? And that's like a reason for her to be forced to talk to this woman. <laughs> Which, that's another thing I want to talk about, Sonia. She refers consistently to Sonia as either dad's mistress or that woman. That's why I called her Mistress Sonia in the summary, because January goes out of her way to not refer to her by her name. She calls her dad's mistress or that woman. And it is not fair to poor Sonia, because at least the first time around, the first time around, she thought he was divorced. She thought they were gonna get married, she was jilted. The second time around, yeah, she knew what she was doing. Yeah, like, and like, I'm I don't disappointed wanna, in you, Sonia. <laughs> I don't want to make a lot of excuses for Sonia because she, she was the affair partner of a man whose wife had cancer. Like, she was not a good person in this, even though I feel like the book goes out of its way to excuse her actions. Yeah, but like, January goes out of her way to dehumanize her, and it's very clear that like Sonia was in love. Like, yeah, it wasn't right what she did, but I feel bad for her because that must have been hard to have fallen in love with this man. Because that's another thing. They were high school sweethearts, mm -hmm. her and January's dad. And he was her first love, her first kiss, all of that. It must be hard to have your first love show up back in your life and be like, I'm divorced, or sing my wife, and we're gonna get married, and we're gonna be in love, and I bought you a lake house, and all this other stuff. And then he leaves you again. And then he comes back. And then he dies. Like, she must have been going through a lot. And she mentions that like now she's moved on, and she's fixed herself, and she's worked on herself and everything. And like, yeah, it makes it, it seems like the affair was over years ago, which is something January was concerned about, and I'm kind of, I mean, like, it changes the way I look at the situation. Mm -hmm. But I don't excuse what she did. <laughs> yeah, I don't excuse Sonia for what she did, but I do feel a little bad for her because of the fact that I feel like, you know, she is getting the short end of the stick when it comes to January because, yeah, January's mad at her dad, but she at least has some sympathy for her dad. When it comes to Sonia, she's just like, you're a whore. <laughs> She never calls her that. She never calls her that. She calls her a mistress and that woman and goes out of her way to not refer to her by her name and all these other things to dehumanize her and make her not a person. And it makes me just feel a little bad for Sonia. Yeah. I'm not excusing her actions. I just feel a little bad for her. 
<laughs> Especially because she very clearly wants to make amends. She very clearly feels bad for what she did. And... I feel like if we sympathize with Sonia, it kind of makes her dad feel worse, because you could say that he was manipulating her and leading her on. The first time around, he kind of was. Yeah. He, he bought a house and was like, we're going to live here and we're going to move. He told her that they were going to move her, his daughter out to the lake house with them. And the three of them were going to spend long, beautiful days on the lake together in their boat and all this other stuff. He, he waved a beautiful, happy nuclear family life in front of her. <laughs> and then he went back to his wife. And then he came back to her again. Yeah. The second I, time around, she should have known better. Like, fool me twice, shame on me. But, yeah, she should have known better, and he definitely shouldn't have done what he did. Yeah, but the first time around, I feel bad for Sonya. Second time around, you should have known better, Sonya. You're a grown woman. But the first time around, I feel bad for her. We've already discussed that this pace is slow as heck, and that is not helped by the New Eden plotline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about New Eden. <laughs> so, New Eden is this cult that Gus is researching for his next book. And it's basically an amalgamation of every like suicide cult you've ever heard of. Heaven's Gate, Waco, it's all there. You know, the premise is it was a big cult. They all lived out in the woods in these trailers. And then one day the cult leader lit the whole place on fire and killed everybody like Jonestown style, but with fire instead of flavoring. You know, very sad. And Gus is researching the whole thing because he intends to write a book about a guy who is infiltrating a similar style of cult. And then now he's going to write a rom-com and he's, I guess, going to turn it into a cult rom-com? Yeah, like, I was, I was confused because this whole time that he kept going back to the cult and taking January there, I thought it was for January's sake it was yeah but i thought he was gonna shelve the idea of the cult i didn't think he was actually gonna try to make a cult a rom-com but he does <laughs> he does in the end he makes a cult rom-com in the end the two of them have written their two stories and january's actually sounds really neat it's a story about a family in the circus in the 1800s and it's like actually kind of a cool little story it's all about you know all this this circus family with secrets like you've got you know this pair of clowns that are gay and they're in love and having to hide their romance and then you've got this dad who's like a strong man or something and he has a secret family and they, your mom's a bearded lady like yeah and this acrobat girl is falling in love with a boy in town but then she has to leave him because she has to go follow the wind where it goes because carny folk are always on the move and like, and also he leaves her. <laughs> and also he leaves her, I think, for like a townie girl. And it's a, it's a cute little story. It's It sounds nice. Carnies with secrets. <laughs> Carnies with secrets. It's fun. Gus ends up writing a story about a man who infiltrates a cult to try to save the woman he's in love with who's become a member of this cult. They escape together after falling in love. And when they finally escape the cult, this couple is driving away and the meteor that the cult leader has been saying is going to hit the cult compound and send them all to heaven actually does crash to earth, but it crashes like a few miles west and hits the car that it they It doesn't hit the car. They're distracted by how beautiful it is and they get t-boned by a truck. 
Oh, is that what happens? Yes. I, I missed that detail. How could you miss that? That was so crazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they weren't even hit by the comet. They weren't hit by the comet. It just went. And the truck hits... A truck hits them? Yeah, no. They were driving on the highway after escaping the compound. The music's playing. <laughs> like, you know, the don't you forget about me victory music. <laughs> and then they see the comet, and the guy is so distracted by how beautiful that comet looks that he swerves in the path of a truck, and they get hit and killed instantly. That's worse. I know, it's worse. <laughs> I That's why I'm shocked that. that you couldn't remember that. I swear I read the book. <laughs> you know, sometimes when a book is this mind-numbingly bad, you forget details. I was so done by the last chapter. But, like, they made it so much worse than this, just them being hit by the comet. Because that's campy, but this is, like... It's really... And Gus swears this is a happy ending. Yes, that cherry on top of this Sunday. Gus thinks this is a happy ending because they were in love and the comet was beautiful. And they were happy. And they died instantly, which is obviously the best case scenario. Yeah, they were happy. They died happy. So therefore, everything's good. Of course, he also insists that January had a happy ending after her main character gets her heart broken and it, nothing works out for everyone because she threw in a line at the end that was kind of hopeful. Yeah. Where she's like, I wonder what the flowers will be like in the next place we go to. Yeah. And he's like, you couldn't resist making it a happy ending. And I'm like, yeah. And she also mm. hints that maybe possibly the acrobat might find love with one of the other carnies. Mm-hmm. So, like, ambiguously hopeful equals happy ending. Or killed by a truck equals happy ending. <laughs> yeah, anything other than absolute doom and gloom equals happy ending in Gus's world. I'm starting to think Gus is a bad writer. I'm starting to think that, too. <laughs> Anyways, the point is, they're doing all this New Eden research. And it's all being used for this freaking <laughs> rom-com, I guess. And the thing is... It serves no purpose to the plot, other than that, one, they're using it for this New Eden research, and two, it serves to put January and Gus together in car rides and stuff for long periods of time. And I just feel like the whole New Eden thing didn't need to be in the book at all. Because there are maybe four scenes involving New Eden. There's a couple of interviews, and then there's when they actually go to, like, the burned ruins of New Eden together. And the interviews are fine. They go to a biker bar, they interview someone, it's short. Yeah, I was so disappointed by the scene at the biker bar because that lasts all of two seconds. Yeah, it really just serves to, like, force the two of them to drive in a car for a while so that they can have an argument at a gas station. Like, we could have had another reason for them to be in a car together and argue at a gas station. Or they could have had this argument at home. They're always arguing in a car. And then... And then there, there's an interview that doesn't happen. They're supposed to meet a guy at an Olive Garden. He doesn't show up. And that's just an excuse for them to be at Olive Garden together. Mm -hmm. And have a date at Olive Garden. Again, there was no other reason they could have gone to Olive Garden together. Or, again, they could have had this conversation at home. But no, we had to go to Olive Garden and we had to bring a cult into it. The conversation where they interview the surviving son and wife of a man who died in the cult. 
who were previously members of the cult who escaped shortly before the fire. That was a somewhat interesting scene, Mm -hmm. and it does allow for them to kind of reflect a little, because January is reflecting on the sacrifices we make for the people we love and why bad things happen to good people and whatever, and the idea of right and wrong and why people do the wrong thing and for the right reasons and things like that. And it allows Gus to reflect on his big thing that he's honestly searching for throughout this entire story, that's the whole reason why he's investigating New Eden, which is why do people stay in bad situations? Because what he's really trying to figure out is why did my mother stay with my abusive father, even though it was hurting her and hurting me? Why did she stay with him until it killed her? Which I don't think she actually died from the father, she died of something else, but you know, why did she stay with him until she died? And then leave me with him? Why didn't we ever get out? And that's what he's really trying to figure out, is like, he's equating his mother to these cult people. And yeah, that's a fine scene, it happens, but like, again, did it have to be a cult? Could there have been another way for this to happen? Maybe, I don't know. And then there's the scene where they actually go to the, the, the cult, the burned, charred remains of the camp and whatever. And that scene got to the point where I started to be offended. Mm-hmm. Because they go to the place, January goes with Gus, he originally is like, you don't have to come to this. And the reason he doesn't want her to come is because it's gonna be horrible. Like, it's an entire compound where people lived and they all burned to death. It's sad. But she goes, and yeah, it's sad as heck. And uh, there's a tent so that they can write because it's raining. So they're writing in the tent. And then they have sex Mm -hmm. in this tent, not necessarily on the dead, charred remains, but like, a mile away. Yeah, like right there. <laughs> and that was the point where I was like, okay, I'm officially not alright with this suicide cult being used as a catalyst for your romance. This feels incredibly disrespectful. Like, can you imagine going to like the charred ruins of Waco or Jonestown and just like Let's set up a tent and bang. Yeah, this definitely felt totally inappropriate. And then write a book for profit about it. Yeah. It it felt very uncomfortable to me. It was... Also, that's another thing. All of the sex scenes in this book are preceded by sadness. Because their first sex scene is preceded by January crying about her father. It's like, blah, 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 my dad is dead, he's a horrible person, I'm so sad, let's bang. And like, grief sex, I know, it's a thing, it happens, emotions, misplaced arousal, but like, wow, nothing like talking about your dead dad to get you in the mood. And then the next time, they're talking about Gus's abusive childhood and his dead mother, and then they have sex on the graves, or not the graves, but the the charred, you know, that place. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what to call it, it's not a grave site. Charred remains. The charred remains, yeah. The, the burnt-out husk of a place, of a compound. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, 
Why'd you pick the least romantic scenes to do the roast romantic moments? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, why are you guys only ever having sex when you're talking about sad, dead people? Like, that just... Like, I understand, but I don't understand. It's, it's tonal whiplash for the reader. It's like, oh, we're reading all about her, her father and how sad and everything, and oh, now they're banging. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the the sex on the burnt out compound, that was really- It was inappropriate. It was inappropriate. That is the best way to put it. It was uncomfortable and it was inappropriate. And I'm so disappointed because I was looking forward to this book because I thought it was going to blend genres. Yeah. Because I thought, okay, you know, we're gonna have some darkness in this book. And, but I feel like the author very intentionally never let it get too dark on purpose and was always pulling back and trying to soften the punches for this cult so the reader never had to think too much about it and the book would stay commercial. Yeah, it was very sanitized. But like, that feels worse because now it feels like you're exploiting what happened to real people. Yeah. Even though this cult isn't real, it's based on what happened to real people. And it's like, okay, so you're gonna do this and you're not even gonna let it offer any real depth to your story. She draws so many parallels to real cults that you can see the similarities. Mm -hmm. But then she sanitizes it and she takes it back and then she turns it into a rom-com in the end for Gus to profit off of. And it's just very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's very uncomfortable. I don't like it. I wish this could have gotten deeper and then maybe it wouldn't feel so awkward, mm -hmm. but like, I can feel you pulling back as a writer. Mm -hmm. I can feel you not letting this story become impactful or getting to the level where the reader would actually cry about this. Yeah. Like, I see what you're doing and I don't appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're not gonna go there, don't write about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna write about a topic like this, you need to actually write about a topic like this. You don't throw it in to add spice to your quirky rom-com. <laughs> the descriptions. The descriptions in this book are very repetitive, especially when it comes to Gus specifically. I cannot count the number of times in this book that we get a description about Gus and his crooked smile. Oh God, I was so sick of it by like halfway through. His lean muscled arms. The fact that he's 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 skinny, but he's got muscles, but he's not ripped. He's just you know, toned. He's got like like swimmer's body, you know. He's got that lazy muscle body. And then also, he he leans on everything. Every scene that he's in, he's leaning. He never stands upright. He's leaning. He's always leaning. You're slouching. He's always leaning on something. Leans against the door. He leans against the wall. He leans against the bookshelf. He leans against the car. And again, always that crooked smile. Like she even describes exactly which side of his mouth. She describes it as the more active side of his mouth. Every single time he's on the page. I know, like, okay, someone, someone needs to tell these authors that you can repeat a description like three times per book. Mm -hmm. Do not make us read the same description every single chapter. Yeah, like we know what he looks like, okay? Mm-hmm. And also like January's outfits also, she mentions that she brought like a capsule wardrobe, which really means she brought a pair of jean shorts and five t-shirts and a dress. Mm -hmm. 
And yet every time she gets dressed, we are going to get a description of exactly what t-shirt she's wearing with her ratty cutoff jeans. And it's always gonna be some 80s band. Mm -hmm. Usually like a Southern rock kind of situation because she's edgy. <laughs> she, she's not really edgy though. So like, I guess she's she just- not edgy. She's cool girl. Yeah. She, yes. She's cool girl. Mm-hmm. Cool girl next door. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last few were definitely nitpicks. Yeah, we've got some nitpicks. We've got some itty bitty nitpicks. My biggest nitpick that is like, it's, it's just a nitpick. It's so small and nobody else cares. And I know nobody else cares, but I have to mention it. At one point, Gus quotes A Walk to Remember. He, he asks January, promise me one thing. Promise not to fall in love with me. And she says, I can't believe you just quoted A Walk to Remember at me. And then she refers to A Walk to Remember as the greatest love story to ever involve Mandy Moore. And I have a problem with that because Tangled exists. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, but your sad cancer story is not as good of a love story as Flynn Rider and Rapunzel. Fight me. I, th I think that's a very legitimate point. <laughs> Tangled is pretty great. Probably one of the best Disney princess movies. Also, This Is Us has Mandy Moore in it too, and that is also a better love story. So again, fight me. <laughs> again, like I said, nobody else cares, mm -hmm. but I care. And the other thing is uh, chapter 13. It's one sentence long and it's not a worthwhile sentence. It is, I dreamt about Gus Everett last night. I woke up sweaty. <laughs> okay. That's it. That's the chapter. You know, I don't even have a problem with one sentence chapters. I think they can be very impactful, but that wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that's actually pretty much everything and we can move on to our final thoughts. Yep, final thoughts. So my final thoughts, is the world worse for Beach Read existing? No. Will some people enjoy it? Sure. Goodreads is to be believed. A lot of people actually really enjoyed this book. It is not for me. It offers nothing interesting or new to its premise or its genre. For me, it is just too boring, kind of irritating people, one significantly more irritating than the other, in a romance that feels like it's not gonna last. Like honestly, if there hadn't been an epilogue, I would have been like, I give it a year. <laughs> if you really love a paint by numbers rom-com where everything is very predictable, then give it a read, have fun. For me, this was a waste of time. Two and a half out of five Blake houses. <laughs> For me, this is not a bad book. It's very painfully average. <laughs> and I was really excited to read the story based on the premise, but I was let down by how shallow it all felt. I wish there was something more here, more likable characters or an important message or something to warrant how popular it is. I guess it's pretty commercial so I can understand why people like it, but this is not a book I will be recommending. I'd give it three out of five poorly written romance novels. <laughs> As always, our ratings are subjective. Give us your thoughts at Twitter, at Couple of Notes, and to get a shout out in an upcoming episode and supply us with some red pens, you can support us on Patreon, now with ad-free episodes and early access, at www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. 
Thank you for listening, and we'll meet back here after the next chapter. chapter.